imagine that Pastor Jeff went out very quickly and bought the carpet so the ladies wouldn't pick something with flowers and other things, you know. So, uh, but he did good. I mean, the colors matching, you know, better than I would, that's for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. So like with our little house, I have just kept my nose out of colors, everything with it. Just let Jesse do it. And, uh, yeah, some things she did. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's good. It came out good. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, there we go. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we ask for your blessing on this word. And Lord, as we are looking at prepare the way, God, we ask uh, that you'd help us to prepare the way, to do what is within our responsibility to prepare the way for you to come, to want you enough to prepare the way, to want you enough to be willing to do what is necessary that we might be a people to behold your glory. And so teach us your ways this evening in Jesus' name. kind of ringing up here if you can uh, I don't know if it's on the monitors or what the prophecy we're looking at comes out of Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 5 and the fulfillment of it is in Luke chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 and it's where uh, uh, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of it a voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way of the Lord make straight paths for him every valley shall be filled in every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. And the fifth verse in Isaiah 40 adds, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And that's really what we're seeking after, that the glory of the Lord would be revealed, that salvation would come to people. So that's really what our desire is. And so what we looked at last week was just really, what does it mean to prepare the way? What's the idea of that? And then the necessity of a voice calling um, in the wilderness, and there has to be a voice. If there's not a voice, then people aren't going to hear. They just don't hear because we exist. And uh, I, I don't know if I said it last week. I don't think I did, but um, I really don't like this one saying that's out there, been around for a long time, and some uh, a credit to Francis of Assisi and all kinds of people have, uh, they've accredited to, but uh, it basically says that we're to uh, preach with our life and sometimes with our our tongues. And uh, I think that's wrong. We're to do it with both. I don't think the scriptures teach one over another. The life needs to back up what we say, but we need to say what is the truth. We need to proclaim it. There has to be a voice crying in the wilderness. There has to be people that are out there proclaiming the truth and what it means to follow Jesus and what it, what it means for them to forsake the world and to really uh, walk in right fellowship. So there's four things that are to be done in this prophecy, and the first one we're going to look at tonight, the other ones we'll deal with as we go on, but is to tear down every mountain. And, you know, as I've studied this and and uh, just went over it, you know, you look at some of the commentaries, and some commentators would say, well, this has no individual meaning, and don't try and get off into what those things mean, and, and uh, you know, just make a general idea of it. And I disagree. I think that the prophecy was given for particular purposes that we can look at, and we can learn some things about this. And 
focus some things in our own life, okay? So what does it mean to tear down every mountain? And there's a lot of things that we could look up. I mean, I could have made a list here of what it means to tear down these mountains in our life. I could have made a huge list because there's all kinds of things. So I had to really whittle them down. And, uh, you know, we're going to look at five particular things, five mountains that need to be tore down. And uh, you have other ones in your own life that you may have to deal with, things that you can see, these mountains that are huge. But um, this is a purposeful act. These four things that we're told to do must be done by the choice of our will. We must choose to do it. The mountains aren't going to come down by themselves. We have to go and purposely recognize the mountains in our life, and we have to purposely begin to dismantle them. Now, of course, when you look at a mountain and you've got a little shovel in your hand, you think you're going to do that in a lifetime? I mean, you've got this supernatural thing before you, this mountain, and there's no way if you spent every waking hour of your life shoveling at that mountain and filling little wheelbarrows or, or semi-trucks with it. How long is it going to take you to do it? Even if you had some big earth-moving equipment, you're not going to be able to tear down that mountain in a lifetime. But none of this is to be done by the strength of man or the wisdom of man. It's to be done through the grace of God because we see and understand what the need is and we go to the only one that can help us because apart from Him, we can't deal with these mountains in our life. Apart from Him, we really can't even recognize it because, you know, the truth be told is we can be some pretty blind people about our own spiritual condition. And so we need to be able to have the courage to say, search me. And, you know, I'll be honest, I don't like that prayer, but I know it's a necessary prayer. I know it's something we need to do, and we need to cry out, God, search me. Help me to understand the things in my own life I need to deal with. And he will do it at the right time. He's not going to be there constantly beating on us. That's not the purpose of what he's there for. He will deal with our needs and those things in our life that must be dealt with as they need it, as we can handle. And he will take us deeper and deeper into it if we welcome it and and approach it. But you think of a mountain, and what is a mountain? It's something big and obvious, okay? If you look, you can see it. It doesn't take much to look. I mean, you know, you look at the Rocky Mountains. And so we were out there this year after we uh, finished some meetings. We took a a belated anniversary and went into Colorado for an anniversary trip. And when you come to this one part of Colorado, it you know, you come out of the mountains and it almost like just goes flat. So you could in one sense look one way and see nothing but flatlands. Of course, you turn around, you look, and you're going to see the mountains. They're going to be obvious. So you have to be looking in the right place. You just can't look anywhere. Now, you get in the middle of the mountains, and the mountains are everywhere. There's no way you can look where the mountains are. But at that particular point, you can go and look in one direction and see no mountains and say, my, aren't I a wonderful person? Look, at I don't, you know, I'm sure I'm human. I have some problems, but I'm okay. And you can see in your life nothing, but that's because you're looking in the wrong direction. You're not willing to look where you need to look. So to see the mountains in our life, we have to be willing to open our eyes. Say, God, what are they? What are they? And you know, there's no such thing as secret sin. No such thing. Because other people may not see that mountain in your life. They may, but they may not. Because they don't see that mountain doesn't mean it's not a mountain. It doesn't mean it's not sin. Because there's no such thing as secret sin. Because every sin affects us. And when it affects us, it affects everybody in our life. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go down that because that's a, uh, such an important thing. But I want to get into these obstacles. And, you know, of course, what's the big obstacle? I can just do it in a very general way. And, and uh, you know, originally I just had four here, but I wanted to deal with this 
fifth one, I added it, which is just the general thing of sin, okay? Sin, we know it is an obstacle. It's this huge mountain. And before we came to Christ, we had this huge mountain of sin. And we could have had oh, whatever names there are. But these mountains were there, kept us from Christ. And we had to come to the place to recognize the reality of these mountains before we could come to the place of repentance. So that's what John the Baptist was all about, right? He was pointing out the big mountains. He was pointing out the reality that they were all sinners. And what did he do with the self-righteous who could not see these mountains that were before them? Well, he confronted them the most aggressively. Jesus did the same thing. I mean, who was he most brutal to? The scribes and Pharisees, the religious people. Who was he the most tender to? The prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people who were just the down and outs and rejects of society. Those are the ones he was kindest and most tender to. And so when we can see the mountains, we can deal with them. But then we have to want to deal with them. So some people can see the mountain and they could say, oh, well, I don't care. This is the way I am. So they never change because they don't want to deal with it. So we have to see the mountain and be willing to tear it down. But, But sin is that first obstacle. So sin is always an obstacle to revival. When you see revival come, it's because a group of people want to start removing the mountains from their life and making themselves ready for God to come to them, making the way straight for Him to come. So they're doing everything in their life preparing for Him to come and also for them to be able to go to Him. So they want that fellowship. They're longing for that fellowship. And they're beginning to deal with their sins. We're looking at the end of this uh, this little uh, teaching on uh, the Welch Revival and and what their four principles were that defined that revival. But one of the most phenomenal definitions of sin I ever came across came from Susanna Wesley, which was the mother of John and Charles Wesley. And she was a religious woman that was not a believer until eventually her sons became believers, and then she started following the Lord. But yet she was a very religiously devout person. And she had 19 children, homeschooled them all. I mean, you got to understand, man, this was one tough cookie. I mean, she was a tough woman and that there, but she came up with the most phenomenal definition of sin. And let me read this to you, then I'll define it. Whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in and of itself. So basically, she has whittled all sin down to two things. Anything that feeds the flesh and anything that takes away our relationship with Jesus. Anything. You understand? those That becomes a whole bunch of stuff that is blatant sin or it can be these things that in of themselves are not wrong, but they're taking away our relish for God, our desire for God, our our desire for holiness. And so these are so important. They become mountains in our life because what are they doing? They're keeping us from loving Christ like we should and they're feeding our flesh. And those are keeping us from the place of fellowship with Jesus. Now, one of the big, humongous sins that keeps revival, that stops Christ from coming to us, so we have to remove this mountain and this mountain is unbelief. And, you know, we really don't understand how terrible unbelief is. We really don't. I mean, we think, you know, doubt, no big deal type of thing. And, you know, I understand an unsaved person doubting because they don't know. They've not come and tasted who this God is. They've not 
experienced him. They've not known his love. They've not entered in that place of being adopted as a son or daughter. So they don't know. They don't have the reference point that we do. But for those who belong to him, those who have become his, unbelief is a, is a terrible sin. It's a humongous mountain. And you know when it gets in our life, it gets in our life. You understand? I mean, it gets a hold of us. It blinds us. It, it cripples us. It fills us with fear because that's really what unbelief is. It's fear. And uh, it's not really willing to trust him. So we can say amen to his promises, but I'm not going to put him into practice because I don't believe that God will do it in my life. Right, isn't it? That basically it. It's huge. I mean, so why don't we see the signs and wonders God wants us to do? Because we don't believe. Why don't we see revival? Because we really don't believe that God wants to bring it. You know, we can go and say, oh yeah, we need a national awakening. Oh yeah, God would like to save people in this area. But do we believe that he wants to do it now? Do we believe that he wants to do it through us? Does, do we believe that we can be agents of it? Or are we letting unbelief become an obstacle to us that keeps us from being the men and women of God that we should be to do what he wants us to do? Now, There's this guy, he's a missionary to Mexico. He's a wild man. Some things I've questioned about him, so I don't know fully, but other times I've heard some pretty incredible stuff. But uh, he went to God and he considered what was the hardest thing for God to do. And there's no such thing, okay? There's not one thing harder for God to do than another. But he's trying to speak in human terms, okay, from a human standpoint, what do you think the hardest thing would be? And so he came to the conclusion that raising the dead was the hardest thing. Okay, that's pretty tough, okay? You can't fake it. I mean, you can fake a prophecy, you can fake all kinds of stuff. If somebody is, is stone dead, you can't fake a resurrection, all right? Either you got the power to raise the dead or you don't. So he went and says, okay, God, I want to see you do miracles of raising the dead. And so here he comes to the situation... And, you know, he's praying about it, wanting to have faith to believe. And this, this, this guy drowns in uh, a river, and they find his body. And there before him is this corpse. And he got absolutely scared, and he ran away. Well, you know, he beat himself up brutally, as you would normally do, as I think we would all do, and say, why didn't I believe? Why didn't I believe? Well, he had another time, and he prayed for the person, and nothing happened. Prayed for another dead person, nothing happened. But guess what? Finally, one raised from the dead. And then faith started rising up in him enough that he could start believing. And the churches he was starting and putting these, you know, the, the national pastors in their place started raising them up, trying to have faith to believe for the miraculous themselves. So why don't we see it? Because we don't believe that God will really do it. Because we don't really believe that God wants to do it in our lives. That we don't believe the promises that God would do it through his church. But yet we claim those things. We say that it's true. And you know what? I'm rebuking myself seriously here because as an evangelist, you know, I've seen some great miracles. I've seen some wonderful things. I can't tell you how many times I've not seen things. And I, I have to be honest with you, there's been times I have been scared stiff when I see somebody coming up for me to pray for. And guess what? That fear right there is unbelief. You know, I'm crying, God, help me to believe, help me to believe. But what's the obstacle for that? I can do what the faith teachers do and say it's their fault. They don't have unbelief. But I don't believe they're right. I believe that's a cop-out. My unbelief. My unbelief, right? And so that's a huge mountain that needs to be dealt with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Only he who believes is obedient. 
And only he who is obedient believes. Faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. In the act of obeying what God has commanded us to do and how to live and how he's commanded us to become a voice crying in the wilderness and proclaim to a dying world the reality of who Jesus is. So the second mountain. Okay, this is one we all know. We all know it very well. It's pride. Okay, pride. I mean, how many of us have a problem with pride? Okay, all right. Anybody who says they don't, they don't really know themselves. Now, are you trying to conquer it? That's a whole different thing, okay? People that are trying to deal with it in their life is different than those who just give over to it and just let it be there or don't want to acknowledge it or don't want to confess it or whatever. And if you're not battling with pride right now, it's not that it's not there. It's just you're not seeing an expression of it that God says you're not ready yet, and I'll show you in a little bit. Right? It's there. I mean, it's just it's the expressions of it. It gets in every part of our life. It gets in our faith. It gets in our worship. It gets in everything. I mean, it just it has these ugly tentacles, and when you when you chop off one tentacle, another one grows in another spot. And you know, I mean, we may beat it down and start learning how to walk in more humility. But there's only one truly humble person in this world. Only one. Now, were other people becoming like him and, and expressing humility? And yes, you had Moses who had the testimony as the meekest man, not in Israel, but in the entire world. And so you want to see the power of humility, the power of meekness. This one man God used to bring the most powerful, the superpower of his day to its knees. Not the most arrogant man, the most humble man. So there's some serious power in it. But yet you look at some occasions in, in Moses and you see some pride popping out of him. Right? I mean, it's hard to, hard to draw near to God and have your face glowing and not become proud about it. I mean, I'm just trying to be real. Those were things he would have to deal with and die just like we have to. Sorry. <laughs> I won't answer that. You know, I'm going, I won't get texts while I'm speaking. No, no. I, I have a friend that he was just becoming a, a pastor, an older guy, second occupation type of thing, you know, now pastoring. And, and uh, he was doing his first funeral, and I just happened to call him. He's right smack dab in the middle of the, fu of the funeral, you know, and the phone goes off, and he's just panicking what to do. He, he silences, and I'm going, oh, what happened? I called him back again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what a way to learn, huh? You know, the nineteen oh four Welch Revival was you know, one of the individuals that was integral to it was Evan Roberts. He was really the evangelist of that revival, though there were others, but he was the primary one. He was the face upon it all. And he was a young man that was in in uh, Bible college and he left. Uh, by the call of God, by the will of God, to go and begin a prayer meeting with a bunch of young people. So it was a bunch of young people that prayed in the revival. And uh, he heard this in a message that was really a part of it while he was at, at Bible school, if I remember the whole story correctly. But uh, uh, in, in Welch, they have a... You know, Welch is a different language. It's not English, but... Um, they have a, 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 a phrase there says, Oh Lord, bend me, which would be the, the same thing as, as break me, okay, as brokenness is what we would say. And um, 
That's really what his prayer became. Bend me, God. Oh, Lord, bend me. Bend me. And he, you know, he had the crisis, bend the church and save the world. You know, so really this place of, of brokenness is so important in laying blows to pride. But it's a mountain. And, and you may beat that mountain down. You may remove a, a bunch of it. But it has this ability like a molehill to pop back up. I mean, it's outrageous how easy it pops up. All you got to do is, is ignore your spiritual life for a little bit, and pride will start showing itself. That's all you got to do. Just ignore it just a little bit, and it'll start showing itself again, and then you'll have to deal with it again. You have to go through all the agonizing uh, work of crucifying that, that particular area over again. But yet this mountain of pride has to be dealt with. Because what does it do? It keeps us from witnessing. It keeps us from telling others about Jesus. It keeps us from walking as what we should. It, it makes us afraid of people. All the other dynamics that go with it that's there, then it has to be dealt with. So if we want to tear down the mountain, we have to see pride as one of the mountains. Charles Finney said, When Christians humble themselves and consecrate all their all themselves afresh to Christ and ask for His Holy Ghost power, they will often receive such a baptism that they will be instrumental in converting more souls in one day than in all their lifetime before. Just the aspect of where they begin to humble themselves before God, then when they really begin to deal with the pride, God can do more in that than what we've done our whole Christian life. Because it's not about our ability. It's about His ability. Being able to be poured through a frail individual that says, Here I am. Send me. The third or fourth uh, mountain is the mountain of self-will. You know, we just want to do what we want to do, and we want to do it our way, and we got our own opinions and our own ideas, and, you know, we might try and say, oh, I'm so surrendered, but I have all these plans for my life, and this is what I want to do. And, I mean, how many people are really as surrendered as they claim? How many people really are at the point of surrender that if God went to you right now, and says, sell everything you have and follow me to Lumbumbashi, that you would leave. I'm just being honest, you know. I mean, how many of us? Are any of us? Are any of us at that place? I mean, I, I may be saying I'm trying to get there. I hope that, that if I heard, you know, I try and hold everything loose in my life, but yet I like my American life, you know. Do I want to go somewhere? And I've heard some, you know, like this one missionary that was a, a, he was a missionary evangelist in some of the Asian countries, and he's over in in some Asian countries over there preaching, and, you know, he gets super sick, and there he is out there in front of everybody having to find some place because he has diarrhea, and everybody is laughing at him. You know, all these people are laughing at him, you know, while this, while this crusade's going on, and I'm going, God, am I willing to go there and be totally humiliated in something like that? Because, you know, your bathrooms now are out right on the street. You see, how far am I really willing to give up my will, my rights? How far am I really? You know, and when everything's nice and easy and comfortable and we can so easy say, Oh God, I love you, I sur I'm surrendered. Until he starts putting his fingers on those things. How about this? How about that? So that man that uh, began to see the dead raised to life, his name's David Hogan. I've, I've, you know, he spoke at the Brownsville Revival in one of the side meetings there. And, and uh, then I saw him at another place. He is a strange bird. That's all I can tell you. I mean, you know, so I still don't fully know what to think about him. Um, 
But yet he made a very powerful statement. Absolute truth here. I am a failure without a failure without obedience to Jesus Christ. I am a failure without obedience to Jesus Christ. I think that's absolutely true. We fail the Christian calling. We fail what it means to be a follower of Jesus without obedience. And so that means we've got to give up our self-will. It's a huge mountain. Giving up our self-will is a huge thing. And it's not going to be something that ends at a particular time. I wish the Methodist doctrine of entire sanctification was true. I wish we could come to this crisis experience and, and, and have this experience and then, then never sin again. But I've never met yet one sinless person. Never yet. And I've gone to God over that doctrine. I've cried, oh God, if it's true, I want to know it. But yet I can't see it in the Word of God. I can't see that place where we come to sinless perfectionism. But yet it's to be the prize, the goal of our life that we keep seeking. And I can't tell you how much I do. I do this all the time where my heart is aching. Where I'm just saying, Jesus, I can't wait to get home. I am so sick of me. So sick of me. One day I will see you and never, ever again break your heart. Never again grieve you. William Law wrote a book, A Devout and Holy Life. I don't like the book. Very legalistic, very heavy. Um, but he said something in the beginning of it that I think is, uh, is very good. He said, devotion is not prayer. But prayer is part of devotion. Devotion signifies a life given or devoted to God. The devout man, therefore, is one who lives no longer to his own will or to the way and spirit of the world, but solely to the will of God. He considers God in everything, and he serves God in everything. He makes every aspect of his common life into an aspect of piety, by doing everything in the name of God and to His glory. That's biblical Christianity right there. That sums it all up. That's what we're called to. But that is the death of our self-will. Now, in, our, in the death of our self-will, do we cease to be people? Do we cease to have personality? Not at all. I believe in heaven our personality will be so purified and my personality will not be like your personality, but there'll be no more sin in our personalities. In the beauty and the perfection of what that is. And I can't understand what that looks like. But when I look at you, I'm going to see the mark of Jesus. But I'm also going to see who you are as an individual. Because it will be perfect. Wonderful. The fifth mountain is irresponsibility. Irresponsibility. This is huge when it comes to revival. This is huge when it comes to the move of God because we don't want to accept responsibility for it. It's pastor's responsibility. It's the evangelist's responsibility. It's somebody else's responsibility. Well, I'm a busy man. I'm a busy woman. I've got all this stuff going on. It's not my, I can't deal with it. And so we put the responsibility on somebody else. But if it's not your responsibility, then whose is it? Who are you going to give it to? And where can we find a verse in Scripture that's going to justify that we don't have the responsibility in bringing the move of God to a, the local community that we're part of? Winky Pratney said, The Word and history teach us that an attitude of indifference and fatalism must be abandoned before revival can be expected. We must abandon them. 
Not an attitude of indifference. We must have a passion. We must have this, this thing beginning to burn in us. And we can't have a fatalism. Oh, whatever you want, God. Well, yes, there's the way that we cry out for your will. But when we know what his will is, we can pray according to his will and know that he hears us. That's what we're told in First John, right? If we pray according to his will, he hears us. And so I think that's a powerful thing that we can look at. Brother Yoon, some of you might be familiar with this book. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is. I didn't write it down. Heavenly Man. There you go. Thank you very much. An underground Chinese church leader. Tremendous book. A lot of suffering in it. A lot of suffering. So when he finally has to flee China because he became so dangerous, such a threat, broke out of I mean, not, I don't want to say broke out of prison. The Holy Spirit let him out of prison. I mean, just phenomenal story with it all. And that uh, he had to leave, and he began preaching in the West. I like some of the times I've heard about his sermons. Basically, he is going against everybody that has been preaching. I mean, all the stuff, all the, the standard big boy stuff that is worthless. And he gets up there, and he says, repent! Going, okay, that's good. You know, they won't have him back, but that was good, you know. He said, all genuine revivals of the Lord result in believers responding with action and soul winning. When God truly moves in your heart, you cannot remain silent. There will be a fire in your bones. Like Jeremiah who said, his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it, indeed, of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. You see, there's something that happens when the reviving begins in our own hearts. Because we want to tear down those mountains. We don't, want, we don't want anything of self-will, of this indifference or any sin in our life. We want to tear everything down because we want the straight path to Him and for Him to come to us. We want everything removed because He is the prize in this whole thing. Stephen Alford wrote much on revival. He said, God always visits His people when they reach the point of desperation. That's on my website there. What a thing. Always at the point of desperation. Until that indifference is dealt with, he will not come. He is waiting for us to want him enough. And when we want him enough, then he will come to us. Until we want him enough, we keep him at a distance. We are not then drawing near to God, and so God will not draw near to us. But when we draw near, when we remove the indifference, when we see the prize of who He is, when we see the obstacles that keep us from Him, then we begin to deal with those things, and that's when He starts showing Himself, because now people are wanting Him. He does not need us. You understand? He doesn't need us. He's not up there going, Oh, I just hope they do it because I'm so lonely. You know, God doesn't have this need, but yet... He longs for us, wants us. To me, that's absolutely astounding. He doesn't need us. He wants us. Evan Roberts. God gave him four principles of revival. I'm just going to touch on these real fast and give a story and close. I want you to think about these. Maybe I'll bring them out again. The first principle. Do a thorough, thorough job of repenting and make restitution whenever possible. You know what that means? Repentance means you make right the wrongs. It's not just turning from them, which is part of it, but you make restitution when able. Charles Finney was so persistent in restitution, the necessity of restitution, that he says people did not genuinely get saved if they did not make right the wrongs that they could. So if you stole them from somebody, you repay it back. 
Have you hurt somebody? You make it right. You deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. You make right what you can. And what you can't, then all you can do is give it to God. Say, God, I'm willing, but I can't do it. There's no way. I can't reach a person. The person has died or whatever it is. But the repentance has evidence. Like John the Baptist said, we bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So the first one is do a thorough job of repenting and make restitution whenever possible. The second thing is, oh my, get the questionable things out of your life. Get the questionable things. We want so many questionable things in our life. We want to be on the edge of the world and not be fully in the world, but have enough of the world that we feel we're being satisfied from the world, though the world can't satisfy. And so what happens is by that worldliness, by whatever it is we're still harboring in our life, we are keeping God from us, and we're not seeing Him do in our life what He really wants to do. So we're not satisfied from our faith like we should, at our own fault, not at the fault of God. The third thing, make public confession of Christ. Tell others about Jesus. That was the thing that became so proud with the Welsh Revival and all revivals. People became so excited they had to tell others. They had to go out there and proclaim the wonder of who this God is. They may not have known anything about anything of, of the gospel, but they told others, I was saved in revival. I had a Damascus Road kind of experience, not knocked down and blinded, but I was all by myself in a park where I partied and dealt drugs. God instantly delivered me from drugs, alcohol, and smoking. And I stood in that park then for the next eight hours or so and told my friends about Jesus. I don't doubt I said some really weird stuff. I didn't know nothing. But there was something so fresh inside of me, I had to tell people. So one guy says, I, I said, uh, so we come to church with me tomorrow. I'm going to hitchhike out to this Jesus Freak church. Never been there before. He said yes and never showed up. Another friend of mine that I didn't see the day before, he happened to show up uh, at the park to start partying Sunday morning. And I says, well, I'm getting ready to hitchhike out to the, excuse me, it was Sunday afternoon. I says, well, I'm getting ready to hitchhike out to the church, this church. You want to come with me? He says, yeah, sure. So we hitchhiked out together and he got saved, my first convert, second day of salvation. I mean, you know, you understand it's just, it's what happens. You just get excited. You got to tell people about this wonderful God. It's just what's part of this faith. The fourth thing is, be quick to obey the Holy Spirit. Goes back to the subject of obedience. Prompt, implicit, unquestioning obedience at whatever the cost. Those are the four keys that really help produce the Welsh Revival. Let me give you a story. I don't know if I've given this one before, but some of you may have heard and other ones may not. But it's awesome, so I'll give it anyway. There was this man, his name was William Steed. He was the famous London editor of the Pall Mall Gazette, a newspaper, famous newspaper. And he ended up going to the Welch Revival, wanted to see it. And he came back. When he came back, he was interviewed by one of his newsmen. This is a portion of that exact interview. Okay? So this was what was published in the newspaper. So this is a, a, a portion of that interview. And Steed must have said something with a certain amount of tension in him. He said, a revival is something like a revolution. It's apt to be wonderfully catching. And the interviewer sensed that tension. He responded, says, you speak as if you dreaded the revival coming your way. Steed said, no, it, that's not so. Dread is not the right word. All expresses my sentiment better. For you are in the presence of the unknown. 
You have read of ghost stories and can imagine what you would feel if you were alone at midnight in the haunted chamber of some old castle and you heard the slow, steady steps stealing along the corridor where the visitor from another world was said to walk. If you visit South Wales and watch the revival, you will feel pretty much like that. There's something there from the other world. You cannot say whence it came or whether it's going, but it moves and lives and reaches for you all the time. You see men and women go down in sobbing agony before your eyes as the invisible hand clutches at their heart and you shudder. It's grim, I tell you. If you're afraid of strong emotions, you better give the revival wide berth. The interview viewer respond, but is it all emotion? Is there no teaching? Steve said, precious little. Do you think teaching is what people want in revival? These people, all the people in the land like ours are taught to death, preached to insensibility. They know they are not living as they ought to. No amount of teaching will add anything to that conviction. What did they need? An encounter with God. 